Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. You know, it's amazing when you think of John's ministry, we'll talk about that in a moment, he had conducted his immersion ministry in the Jordan River. Multitudes came out and he began to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the immersion that went on was a public uh, experience in which the individuals that were being immersed were testifying to the public that they joined with Yochanan, with John, that indeed there was a need to repent and that, yes, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Messiah was near to us. So I like the idea of doing it publicly. I like the idea of doing it outside where we look up to the sky and see the heavens just in full form for all of us to visualize and to see and to reflect on what Messiah has done for us. So why is it that we do this thing called immersion? Many have thought that this is a quote-unquote Christian idea. But immersion really originates with the Jewish people. I, 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 I would say that in one sense it is a Christian idea if you understand Christianity to be Jewish. You know, that was Edith Schaefer's title of her book, Christianity is Jewish. So the early believers were called Christians, followers of Messiah. That's what it means. And all of those believers were Jewish. And they were practicing immersion. We oftentimes hear it referred to as baptism. But better, perhaps, is the word immersion because that tells us what's going on. Baptism is, the term baptism is is simply a transliterated word from the Greek. And it doesn't really speak to us in modern language because we sort of uh, identify this word baptism in whatever manner we might want to or how we sort of understand it. But it's about immersion. And this is a Jewish experience. This is a Jewish thing that is going on. So why do we do this? We do this because in Matthew chapter 28, when Yeshua gave us his last marching orders, we can call it, his last assignment to his followers, he told his followers to go into all the world. And so that means both Jew and non-Jew alike is to be approached with what Messiah is telling us to do. He tells them to go into all the world, go among all the nations. The Greek word there is ethne. It means all the ethnic people groups. It doesn't just mean nations in the modern sense of the word. It means tribal groups, such as in South America or in Africa or in Australia. It means all the ethnic backgrounds, all peoples, Jews and non-Jews alike. He says go into all the world. Go among all the ethne, all nationalities, perhaps might be a better term to use. 
Go among them, and he says to teach them all things that I have taught you. He says, go and make disciples of all peoples. Disciple, the word disciple means follower. means one that looks to Yeshua as their master, as their Lord, as the one that they would follow, the one that they would emulate, the one whose example they would seek to uh, model, be modeled after. In the first century, the Jewish people, they had rabbis. And the rabbis had followers, disciples, Hillel, Shammai, Akiva, and others. They had followers, and those followers were their disciples. Yeshua is the rabbi of those that acknowledge him to be Messiah. And we are his disciples. We are his followers. So he's telling those followers in that particular moment, those 11, he tells them, go into all the ethne, go among all the people groups of the world. And to make disciples, make followers of Messiah, make followers of me out of them. And you're to do that in two ways. So in one sense, a full follower of Messiah, in the fullest sense of the word, experiences two things. Number one, he tells them, teach them everything I've taught you. So a follower is a learner. A follower is a teachable individual who is desirous of learning the things of Messiah. So on the one hand, we are to be about the business of making disciples by teaching individuals the things Messiah has taught us. And the second thing he says, not only are we to teach them what Messiah has taught us, but we are to immerse them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God. This idea of immersion is what we need to talk about. What does it signify? What does it mean? This answers the question of why we do it. Because this is the command, and it is an imperative. Go among all the ethne, and you are to teach them. It's a command. And you are to immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the way disciples are fully made is by individuals sitting under the tutelage of Messiah's teachings and being immersed in light of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we do it, because Messiah has commanded us to do it. What does it signify? What does it mean? Well, we use this word baptism, but that's a Greek word, baptizo. And it literally means to immerse. A similar word means to dip. And sometimes the word is translated to sprinkle. But more often than not, it is used in the sense of immersing, of submerging, as it were. So there are all kinds of illustrations in the Greek language. And so one prominent example is that when cloth is being dyed a particular color, it is baptized into the water or into the dye. And it is, the cloth is brought out now a new and different color. It was fully immersed into the vat of dye so that it would take on this new coloring. And so the word baptism or the word baptizo or the word immersion means just that. To immerse, to submerge. And that's the act that is performed. Now in various traditions, different modes or different methods are used. Some sprinkle, some sprinkle children, babies, infants. Some pour, some pour water over individuals' heads because of the conditions down at the ocean. 
Anthony was a little concerned, so he brought a bucket. <laughs> In case anyone gets a little frightened, we've got a bucket. I don't know if we'll use it, but maybe you can sit on it in the water and we'll, we'll do it. We'll figure a way to use it, though. But sometimes there's a pouring, sometimes a sprinkling. But I believe that it ought to be done with a full immersion. Amen. So why do I think that? I think that because that's the way the Jewish people practiced immersing. So now here's the thing. Immersion or baptism is a Jewish thing. It originated with the Jewish people. But what's interesting is that it is used among the Jewish people in limited ways. That's not really important to us. But the way that it is particularly used in a religious significance is not with regard to Jewish people. Immersion by the Jewish people was really performed on non-Jews. And it was a way in which a non-Jew became identified with the Jewish community. So in the Jewish community, in the Jewish understanding, there were non-Jews that would identify themselves or would recognize the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being the true God. And so non-Jews that came to realize it was the God of the Jewish people who's the true God might desire to identify themselves with the God of the Jewish people. And there were three stages through which the non-Jewish person would come to a fuller or a fullest identification with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first stage were non-Jews that identified themselves with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but did not fully convert to Judaism. They were referred to by the Jewish people as God-fearers. So we have one prominent example of a God-fearer in the Bible, who is Cornelius. And it is Peter who is sent to Cornelius, who is described as a God-fearer. As a God-fearer, Cornelius rejected the gods of the Romans. And he recognized the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he was not going to fully convert to Judaism. He was a Roman centurion. He was going to keep his Roman name. He was going to keep his Roman position. He was going to keep his uh, cultural identity among his own people. But he was going to reject the God of the Romans. And as a result, the Jewish people would refer to him as a God-fearer. One who knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but was not going to change anything about himself with regard to his culture or his identity. But then there were other non-Jews, unlike Cornelius, who would like to become more entrenched, more connected, more involved in the Jewish community. These individuals were referred to as proselytes at the gate. They're talking about the gate of the temple. Because these non-Jews, unlike Cornelius, they were studying about Judaism. They were studying about the Jewish traditions. They were studying about the Jewish holidays. They were desirous of keeping these holidays and perhaps keeping some of the laws. And so they were now studying with some rabbis and learning more and more about the Jewish people. They weren't content, like Cornelius was, to merely be identified with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as such, but wanted to also be included among his people and to be expressing their worship and their life in a Jewish way. So they now were committing themselves to learning more about it. 
Such non-Jews were called proselytes at the gate. That is, they were right at the gate of the temple. They weren't fully converted, so they couldn't go in the temple. But they were learning about the ways of the Jewish people. They were contemplating a full conversion so that they could enter through the gates, the beautiful gate, entering into the temple compound itself. They were proselytes at the gate. But then if you were a non-Jew... And you said, you know, I'm going to go the full 100 yards to the finish line. And to be fully converted to the Jewish people, fully entrenched in the Jewish tradition. Now, as a male, you would be willing to be circumcised. And secondly, you would then be immersed. The act of immersion or baptism that the Jewish people would perform on that non-Jew would submerge him in the water, and as he came out of the water, it was as if the water had washed away all of his non-Jewish background, and now he was fully integrated and recognized as a Jew. His name would be changed. He'd have access to the temple. If he was a man, he could go through the court of the women and right into the court of the men. Even though a non-Jewish-born individual, through full conversion of circumcision and immersion, He was now considered a Jew by the Jewish community. So immersion was a means by which the individual identified himself fully with the Jewish people. Now what happens in the course of history is just before Messiah appears on the scene of history, his herald, his forerunner, is going to herald the coming of Messiah. And Yochanan, John, the immerser, the Baptist, He is on the Jordan River, and he's announcing the coming kingdom and the need for Israel to repent and to receive Messiah as he is coming. He is immersing Jews, not non-Jews. And that's why the Jewish leadership is taking an interest in what John is doing. He's doing something Jews do not do to Jews. He's calling on Jews to repent and to be immersed, but generally Jews called on non-Jews to repent and be immersed. So what the Jewish leadership does in the time of Messiah, they, take, they have two steps. One is they send out an observation party to see what John is doing. He shouldn't be, who gave him permission to be immersing Jews? We don't do that. We immerse non-Jews. What's going on? They send out an observation party. And the observation party observes. Yochanan is indeed immersing Jews. He's calling them to repent. He's telling them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They make the report back to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin send out a second party. They are an investigation party. They now come to John and they say, who has authorized you to do this? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Why are you doing this? And Yochanan says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I am the herald of the Messiah that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 40. With that, the Jewish leaders are not happy because now they're saying this one is professing to be the herald of the Messiah. What was Yochanan doing? Individuals, Jews, were identifying themselves with John's movement of repentance 
and his teaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were immersed by John, his immersion didn't do anything to you. Rather, it was a means by which you were being identified with his message and with his movement. It's important you understand that because when Yeshua comes, he submits himself to Yochanan's immersion. But he's not a sinner. He doesn't need to repent of anything. So why does he submit to Yochanan's immersion? Because immersion was a means of identification with. And so when Yochanan immerses Yeshua, Yeshua is identifying himself with John's message. Israel does need to repent, and indeed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, here I am to announce it. And the very first message Yeshua gives in Matthew chapter 4 is the very same message Yochanan has given. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his earthly ministry is an announcement and demonstration and authentication that indeed he is the Messiah of Israel. Now, after his ministry, he experiences the death, burial, and resurrection. As followers of Messiah, we now identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection. To put it this way, we would say we are identifying ourselves with the full redemptive ministry of Messiah. What we're doing is not what the Jewish people did to the non- with non-Jews. We're not making individuals followers. They already are followers. We're providing an opportunity for each individual to identify themselves as one of Yeshua's disciples. And to be one of his disciples means to believe, to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon, to have fully immersed in our hearts that Yeshua is Messiah, that he died for my sins, that he was indeed buried for three days, that he did rise again, and one day he will return to this earth. So when we immerse, we are immersing with the sense of this is an opportunity, this is a means, and it is a command to be done by every follower of Yeshua to be identified with him and with his ministry. Now, one last thing I'd just like to point out. We're almost right at 11.30. But earlier Rex read from Romans chapter 6. If you turn there with me just very briefly, and there's much more that could be said about immersion, but time will just not permit it. But in Romans chapter 6, a passage that is associated with water baptism but does not really refer to water immersion. But I want to point this out. Not only is immersion a way by which we identify ourselves with the messianic ministry of Messiah, but it also is a way of identifying with his messianic ministry in my own heart that will result in a transformation of my life. So what we're committing ourselves to and identifying ourselves with is what Messiah has done for us. But what he's done for us is not just save us from our sin, but what he's done for us is also to transform us to be more conformed in the image of his son. That's what Romans 6 focuses attention on. And I just want to point out one small phrase, which is very striking in this passage. It comes up three times. If you look at Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 
1 and 2, verse 2, but look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Watch this. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now keep focus on that phrase. Die to sin. Now look at verse 10. He says in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now that little phrase is all important in understanding this passage because what the passage is not saying, though what I'm going to say is true, but the passage is not saying this. He does not say Messiah died for sin. He says he died to sin. Now, that little phrase to us may not sound significant, but it makes all the difference in the world with regard to what Paul is trying to teach us. It is true he died for sin, but that's not the point he wants to make here. He's saying that Yeshua died to sin, and he rose from the dead to live to God. And then he says that we who are identified with him have also died to sin, and that we have been raised to new life to live to God. And so this is what I think, very, just very quickly. When he talks about Yeshua dying to sin, Yeshua was identifying himself with sin. Though he knew no sin, he identified himself with sin so as to give his life for sin. Before he could give his life for sin, he has to be identified with sin. He has to take on sin. He has to be sort of affected by sin. That's why he could die. Even though he was not a sinner, he bore our sin. He carried our sin, and therefore his death was in the sphere of sin. And thus he died to it, not only for it, so as to remove its judgment upon us. But he died with respect to it. And he no longer will do that again. What that means is when Messiah comes the next time, he will now come in his glory. He will no longer be subjected to the effects of sin because he's already died to it. And therefore, it no longer has any relevance to him whatsoever. So that the next time he comes, he comes in glory, not a veiled glory in his humanity. The next time he comes, he never gets tired. Though when he first came, he oftentimes would sleep, such as on the boat in Galilee. When he came the first time, he suffered on the cross. He will never, ever do that again because he's already died to sin. And therefore, he has vanquished its effect and he no longer has any relevance to it whatsoever. Is that amazing to think about? It's, sin is over for him. Those years that he came into this world, he came in the sphere of a sinful world which he never will be impacted by again because he died to it. Now, here's the amazing thing. Paul says, just as Yeshua died to sin, so have you and I. We too have died to the sphere of sin. That's in the aorist tense, by the way. It doesn't mean we're dying to the sphere of sin. It means we have already died to it. It's a past fact of reality. So what is Paul saying? If you're his disciple, then we are ones who are already dead 
to sin. doesn't mean we don't sin. It means the sphere of sin no longer need have its claim upon us. What is he talking about? He's talking about our life. Now think of your life this way. Think of your life as a two-volume set. Just like we have the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures. Think of your life as a two-volume set. The first volume is your life before you came to know Messiah. Once you came to know Messiah, the first volume ends, a new volume begins. You are now alive no longer to the first volume. You are alive to the new volume. What your life consisted of in the first volume, you're dead to. So Paul is saying, how can you go back to that? You can't go back to what was because it no longer is. That's vanquished and it's over. There's only one option for a believer, and that is to go on to the new volume of life. That's what immersion is. It's that moment in time, in a very visible, visible way, where you're declaring your identification with what Messiah has done. And what has he done? He has enabled you to be dead to sin and alive to God. This is no small matter. When you step into that water and you come out, you are no longer what you were, (laughs) as it were. I don't mean that literally, literally. You were no longer what you were when you invited the Lord into your life. But this now is the opportunity to historically and visibly and in reality, not just in your heart, to make it known and to reflect upon it. Volume one of your life is over. Therefore, move on to volume two. Now, if you insist on living in volume one, God is not going to be pleased. And your life will be miserable. We all know that. When we've gone back to volume one, we have found how miserable our life is, how guilt-ridden our hearts and minds become, how anxiety-ridden, how the tension and all that stuff, because God is trying to tell you, you have died to that. It will no longer bring satisfaction for you in the long run. It may have a momentary pleasure, as the writer to the Hebrew says, but it will end up eating you and hurting you and making you miserable. Look at the life of Saul. It's a great illustration. He played the fool. Those are his last words. And that's what we do when we insist on living volume one, when we have died to sin in Messiah. And therefore, we need to move on. Now, if we still remain there in our misery, God can do one other thing. He can take our lives prematurely. And we read of that in Corinthians. The point is, Our God is a jealous God who loves us. His son has died so that we would die to sin and move on in the volume of life that God has for us, which is alive to God. And so our only option is to move forward with him if we expect to see the great blessings of God poured out on us personally. And I would dare say, on our congregation collectively. So this afternoon, we're going to head down to the beach. We're going to immerse those who are making this public declaration. 
And we're all going to rejoice in that Messiah has died to sin. And sin no longer has any relevance to his life. And we will remember in him we too have died to sin. It no longer should have any relevance in our lives. We battle it for sure, but it no longer has its claim. And there's no, it's no longer our sphere of life. But we're going to celebrate, not just the negative, we're going to celebrate we are alive to the living God. And it's to him we give all praise. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your blessing on us. And we are grateful for what Yeshua, our Messiah, has done. And we're thankful for those who this afternoon will make a public declaration of the wonder of your love and the grace of your forgiveness and redemption. Help us, Lord, to take this truth to heart so that when temptations assail us, we will remember we have died to sin. We are alive to you, O Lord, and your spirit has taken residence in our hearts. Help us to live the reality that is ours because of what Yeshua has done for us, we pray. In Messiah's name, amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.